um, I got linked up with a, about five or six other guys, um, and we are actually going to take a trip to Nepal here in about two weeks. Um, now, Nepal is a closed country. They are Hindu, and they really don't want any other religions there. And so they are less than 1% Christian, less than 1% evangelical. And so we have some guys that are there on the ground that have moved their, their families there, that have moved their lives there. And we have the opportunity to go trek um, through the Himalayas, uh, which is going to be incredible and is going to be super exciting and awesome, but it's also going to be terrifying. Um, and uh, what has recently happened is Nepal has a thousand different dialects. They have so many different languages and all kinds of things. But the two main dialects, the New Testament has recently been translated into their language for the first time. And so what we're going to be able to do is we're meeting with some guys on the ground that have smuggled some of these New Testament Bibles in. And we're going to have the opportunity to take some of the first Bibles into these villages and into these places in Nepal where the word of God hasn't yet gotten to be. And we have this opportunity. And so uh, it's been very prayerful. It's been very uh, deliberate. And it's something that I'm super excited about. So September 7th, we're going to start the trip out there. By September 9th, we will get to Nepal because it is on the other side of the planet. Um, and it's going to take a hot minute. We actually get to fly through Qatar, um, which is a Muslim country. And so I'm really hoping we get to explore a little bit of that. That's, that place looks awesome. Um, but then we fly into Kathmandu, and then we go up to Pakar, and then we start our trek. And so we're going to be going through the Himalaya Mountains uh, for about 10 days, and then we'll head back. And so we have this awesome opportunity and so that is going to be from September 7th uh, through about the 17th or so. Uh, we'll come back stateside and be crazy jet lagged and have a great time when we get back. Um, but that is what's going on um, very soon. So actually a week from Thursday, we'll fly out and begin that trip. And so just want to ask you all to be praying over that, be praying over that opportunity, praying over uh, the logistics of it, because it is. I mean, it's a closed country. And so we have to be very careful about how we present the gospel over there. Um, but we also want to be very deliberate and be able to just enjoy what God is doing there and find those people of peace. Um, and so that is what we're going on. And so that's what we got going on. Um, Gordon asked me to share that this morning. And so if we would just take some time and pray over this. Um, All right. Thank you, Kenny. Appreciate it. Um, so we'll be in touch with y'all over the coming week and, of course, next weekend, talk about how we can mobilize our church in prayer for this mission trip. Because as he said, this is a closed country. This is not something we're posting on Facebook. It's not something we're putting out there. Hey, we're coming bringing some Bibles. Um, and so we just need to be in prayer for that, for their safety, uh, that they're able to accomplish all that the Lord has before them. So I'm excited for Kenny and for this opportunity for our church as well. We are in a series looking at the parables of Jesus. Today we come to the parable of the wedding feast. Next week will be the parable of the great banquet. And those are two different things. In fact, the parable that Jesus tells today is one that almost doesn't even quite sound like a parable. You wouldn't even know it was a parable necessarily if Luke hadn't said, and Jesus told them this parable. So uh, our parable today uh, is the parable of the wedding feast. Our, my presentation today will be very similar to what it's been in the past several weeks. We'll identify the setting, like what is the occasion, what prompts Jesus to want to share this parable, and then we'll examine the parable itself, and then we'll do some application. So I'm excited to be able to share some of this with you. Um, again, the parable of the wedding feast, we're going to read the parable. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 7 through 9, skip verse 10, and then verse 11. Here we go. 
Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and jump into the setting for this parable. The setting, we've got to go back to the beginning of chapter 14 in order to figure out what's going on and, the, and why Jesus, what prompts him to want to share this. So look at chapter 14 and beginning at verse 1. It reads, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, we learned three things from this verse right here. The first thing that we learn here is that it was the Sabbath. So the occasion of Jesus telling this parable is that it's on the Sabbath day. And if you know anything about ancient Jewish law, you know that the Sabbath day was a day when you're not supposed to do what? To work, right? You're supposed to take a break from any kind of work. And so they were very strict about their adherence to those rules. The second thing that we learn is that Jesus was at the home of a prominent Pharisee. It says there that he was, he was meeting with a ruler of the Pharisees. Perhaps this guy was of such importance, of such influence, that he was even one of the council of 40 of the Sanhedrin that ran the entire nation of Israel. The point is that Jesus was at the home of a very powerful, very influential, both political and religious leader, a ruler of the Pharisees. And then finally, we learn that the reason why Jesus is there is because he's been invited to dinner. He didn't just happen by the guy's house and smell some nice food inside and just wander on in. He was actually invited to a dinner party. That is the occasion that we see here. And then, um, so the events that follow in chapter 14 are the events of this dinner party, things that take place at this dinner party. Jesus um, interacts with some of the guests. Um, he talks with them. He shares some stories with them, gives them some teaching. He even heals the guy that's at this party. Um, but again, all of this takes place over the course of a meal. End of verse 1, it says that the Pharisees were watching him, watching Jesus carefully. The word in the Greek that's translated watching him is the word paratera umanoi. And that word means, I know it's kind of a mouthful. I had to work on it a couple times this week. Um, that word means that they, had, they were watching him savagely. They were watching him with ill intent. It wasn't that they were saying, hey, Jesus, you know, we want to come watch you. We want to come see what you do. We want to learn from you, Jesus. We want to get to know you a little bit better. That's not the kind of invitation that they've given him. They gave him an invitation so that hopefully they could catch Jesus in some sort of a misstep, that they could catch Jesus uh, making a mistake or doing something wrong, that they could then turn around go out to the crowds and say, hey, look, this Jesus that you thought was this great person, he's actually a person of no reputation at all, and so they wanted to tarnish him. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man before Jesus who had dropsy. Dropsy was a condition of fluid retention, be very similar to a congestive heart disease, except it involves all the organs of the body. The kidneys are not able to process through all the, all the fluids in the body, and so the fluids built up, it's very painful. In other words, the point is this guy was a very sick man. Now that raises a question. What is a prominent Pharisee who's having a dinner party with other influential people doing, inviting a very sick man to that party? Hmm. So some commentators have suggested, and I would agree with them, that this guy was there as bait. 
that this guy was there to entrap Jesus. Remember, it's a Sabbath day. They know Jesus. He healed people. People come along, and he's a compassionate guy, and they just, he can't help himself, right? Somebody's sitting there, they're in pain. Jesus is going to heal the guy. Well, we'll bring this guy, we'll bring Jesus in on the Sabbath. We'll bring this guy with dropsy in on the Sabbath, and Jesus will just, he'll do what he does, and he'll heal the guy, and then we can turn that around go out to the crowds and say, see, Jesus doesn't care anything about the laws of Moses. He flaunts the laws of Moses, and so they can uh, destroy his reputation. My point is that this is a conniving, deceptive, backstabbing, unscrupulous brand of human being that Jesus is having dinner with. Are you beginning to pick up on that? Okay. Um, They were all smiles right up until the moment that they inserted that knife in your back. Verse 7. Now, he told them a parable to those who were invited, and the reason why he told them this parable is because it says he noticed how many of the guests who were there chose the places of honor. So Jesus walks into the dining room, and he makes an observation. People sitting around the table, he notices that all of the good seats have been taken. Um, Again, this says something about the kind of people that Jesus is at dinner with. In Jesus' day, the dining room table was shaped like a U, especially in the house of a prominent Pharisee. It would probably have been a very big table that would extend in quite a ways. In the belly of, so if we have the U and the legs of the U, in the belly of the U, right in the center there, is where the host would sit. The most prominent seats, the most honorable seats, were to the left and to the right of the, of the host. In other words, the ones that were closest to the host. The least honorable seats were the seats out at the ends of those legs, out at the ends of that table, the seats that were furthest away from where the host was sitting. And so if you happened to be sitting at the ends of that table, well, everyone else at the table knew the pecking order, and they knew where you belong. Now, you're still sitting at the, at the table of the, of the host, right? You're still an honored guest, but you're not as honored as everybody else that's out in front of you. Also in Jesus' day, the most important guests would intentionally arrive late so as to make a more grand entrance. All the other guests would arrive, say they'd arrive at 5 o'clock or 5.30, but then the most honored and most distinguished would show up around 6 o'clock. And so everyone else was gathered, and then when the most distinguished guests arrived, they could say, hey, you know what, all right, fine, so-and-so is here, now we can begin uh, this party. Jesus observes that at this dinner party, several of the guests had already taken up the top spots at the table. In other words, they had preempted, think about this, they had preempted the most distinguished or the most honored guest who would again arrive a little bit later. Basically, they had put their purses, they had put their coats on the back of the chairs closest to the host, and they had claimed the prominent seats. These are the kinds of people that Jesus was having dinner with. Now, I suppose Jesus could have just let all that go. Certainly, there's a place for that. But on this occasion, Jesus sees an opportunity for a teachable moment, and he decides to speak into the situation. He says, verse 8, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, for example, do not sit down in a place of honor. Sure, many of us have been to wedding receptions before, and there's always certain tables at wedding receptions that are considered tables more important than other tables at the wedding reception. 
you've got the kids' table, perhaps, on the one end. And then on the other end, you've got the head table, where the bride and the groom sit, and all the wedding parties sit. And then you've got a couple other tables that have that word reserved on them. And that's perhaps for the mother of the groom, for the bride of the groom, and for those immediate families. And so, basically, what, the, what these folks have done is, they've walked in, they've sat down next to the bride, they've sat down next to the groom, and said, hey, good to see you, I'm glad we could enjoy this meal together, right? Or they sat down at the reserve table with the mother of the bride, and people are looking around going, why are you sitting here, right? Uh, because they think of themselves as more important than grandma, even though this is, you know, grandma's grandson getting married here, well, you know, I'm here too, right? I mean, I, I, I do banking with you. And so, of course, I'm an important person. You want me to sit at the reserve table. Again, these are the kinds of people that Jesus is having dinner with. Things that would be quite obvious to you and I that these are social proprieties that, that we don't break, that we observe and yet these people, because of their sense of self-importance, are so clouded by their sense of self-importance that they do things that should be obvious not to do. Here's what's going to happen if you do that. Jesus says in verse 9, He who invited you both will come and say, in other words, you and Grandma, will come and say to you, Sorry, I'm going to have to have you give up your spot for Grandma. Because... We need a spot for her to sit, and we want her to sit at the table marked reserved. In other words, you're going to be asked in front of all the other guests to relinquish your seat to Grandma, who showed up late because she was a distinguished guest. And then what will be left for you to do is to do the walk of shame to the kids' table, because that's the only spot where there are still seats left, right? Now, one might think, again, that this is obvious. Why does Jesus even think about this? Why is he even needing to point this out? This is what he's working with. These are the people that Jesus has gone to dinner with. Having taught on what not to do, Jesus now gives his recommendation on what to do. I, as I was reading through this this week, I almost think Jesus is just chuckling to himself. I, I think he's almost just having a little fun um, as he's sharing this story. Um, so having taught what not to do, here he's going to tell you, hey, look, gang, here's what you should do. Verse 10, instead of arriving early and picking your spot, when you're invited, Go and sit in the lowest place, that is, pick the spot at the end of the table. And then when your host comes, he will say, because you, know, you, you came in, you saw all the empty seats, you arrived early, and you thought, I'm going to sit at the very end of the table. I'm not going to sit down there near the host. I'll sit at the very end of that U-shaped table. And then when that happens, all the other guests come in, and the, and the host will look down the table and say, what are, what are you doing? What's, what's Tim doing? Right, there's Tim. Tim what's Tim doing? Sitting down there at the end of the table. Tim, come on up here to the front. We got a spot right here for you, right? You sit, Senator, move over. And Tim, you sit down here right next to me. And then you'll have this wonderful little moment where everybody else who's there for the party will see you get to walk down to the front and will see you get invited by the host to sit next to the host. And it'll just be this just beautiful little, you know, stars will be popping and there'll just be all sorts of wonderful things happening and, uh, and, and everybody will be able to celebrate you. Again, he's just fe almost feeding into their egos, right? Again, I think Jesus is just having a little bit of fun here. We always, a lot of times we think he's quite a serious guy and I think he is a serious guy and he can be serious. But again, look at who he's working with here. Let's remember that this statement comes straight from the lips of the Lord Jesus in verse 11 where he says, hey, look, here's the bottom line, folks. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Again, come straight from the lips of the second person of the Trinity. This is God in the flesh speaking. And what is it that God says? He says, if you exalt yourself, expect to be humbled. God will see to it. A principle of life. But if you quietly serve, God will make sure in due course that you are honored. Now, this principle is echoed elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Proverbs 25 and verse 6, which is probably where Jesus got this concept from. It says, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. Verse 7, for it is better to be told, come up here to be put lower or than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. First Peter chapter 5, middle of verse 5, Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And uh, Jesus, about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2, when he gives this teaching about humility, he says, he, sees, he talks about people who've got arrogance issues, who've got self-importance issues. He says, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. That's these religious leaders that he's having dinner with. That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward Instead, Jesus says, this is the kind of conduct that I'm looking for. Verse 4, let your giving be in secret. And he goes on to say, verse 5, when you pray, another for instance, do not be like the hypocrites, those people that he's having dinner with. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen. They want to go out in the street corner. They want to tell some little boy out there with some money to go announce to everybody that so-and-so is coming. And he walks out with his robes and he waves his arms in the air while he's praying. And he has everybody listen to him. He says, don't do that. He said, instead, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly if need be. What's the point of all this? Well, first of all, Jesus, are you figuring out Jesus is dining with a somewhat arrogant (laughs) group of people? That's some some of what's the issue going on there. Secondly, the Lord Jesus is trying to help these folks. He's trying to correct some of that built-in arrogance. He reminds them that God opposes the proud and that God will bring them low. It may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. But God says it's going to happen. All right, well, that's our text for today. That's our treatment of this parable. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Great question. Well, Jesus is not, by the way, trying to give us great banquet etiquette. That's, that's not his point in telling this parable. Rather, he's addressing this issue of arrogance. He's addressing the issue of humility, true biblical humility, and that making a point that we need to bring more of that into our lives. My guess is, though, as I was unpacking some of this story and we were meeting some of these characters who Jesus is sitting at the table with, that some faces came to mind. Right? Some people perhaps in your workplace, some other soccer moms, um, some people that, you know, who, are, who are in your industry, but they're competitors in your industry. People who flaunt their success or who flaunt their connection to successful people. And why do they do this? Well, they do this to convince you and to convince the rest of the world that they are a person of consequence. That's what they're trying to do. Isn't that what's going on at the dinner table? You have a bunch of folks jockeying for position because they're driven to want to be somebody. They want to be seen as somebody. Take a look at this next slide. This comes from a book called Real Power. It's something I've shared with y'all before. It's written by a lady named Janet Hagberg, and this model helps illustrate 
who Jesus is having dinner with and what it is that he's up against. Um, there's one more. Next, go ahead and to the next slide because you can read a little bit better. This is my stick figure version, so apologize for this. But anyhow, I need to maybe work on it and embellish it a little bit better. But um, let me just explain these stages of maturity. Basically, what Hagberg has done is she has um, looked at human life and said, this is kind of the way we mature. We start at stage one where we feel powerless, um, and then we move to stage two, which is what she calls the association stage. And then we move to stage three, I'm going to explain these here in a second, which is the arrive state, and then on to reflection, purpose, and then that final gestalt stage. Let's start at stage one. Stage one is somebody who's, um, who doesn't feel like they have the resources or the wherewithal to move out of their current situation. They may feel stuck in marriage. They may feel stuck in a job. They may feel just stuck in life. Like, I just don't know how to change or alter my situation. And so it leaves us feeling powerless. You can feel, you can be stage three at work, but stage one at home, or, or vice versa. And so um, don't feel like this is all one catch-all for one person. Um, stage two is a person who um, associates with other people or with successful people or successful places or, or just the place to be. And by associating myself with the place to be, hey, look at me. Right? I'm at the table of the most powerful or the ruler of a Pharisee tonight. I'm having dinner with him, and, and we'll Instagram you know, ourselves at, at the rule of the Pharisee's house to, to let people know where we were. And so that's, kind, that's stage two kinds of behavior. Stage three are people who have arrived. Right? These are people who have achieved what our world would consider success, whether it's position or title or bank account um, or stuff, whatever that might be. Um, but our world, whatever, however our world defines success, these people have arrived there, right? They got the corner office. Um, they've accomplished a lot. Um, and these are people who perhaps have, have a lot of skill and ability. And so they've kind of risen to the top of their uh, respective fields. Again, the association, the stage. And so that's the ruler of the Pharisees sitting in the belly of the U of the table. And then perhaps some of the others that were wanting, again, to be associated with that person. When we move to the stage four, this is the power by reflection. These are the people who begin to ask life's ultimate questions. Like, what, is, what am I here for? What does God want me to accomplish with my life? Is there something more that I'm supposed to do than just get into the corner office? And so those questions begin to define purpose. So as we ask those questions and begin to think about and contemplate those questions and we become more and more dissatisfied with the world's definition of success, we begin moving across um, to the other side of that equation and where we begin living out of a more profound sense of purpose. This is where we turn our lives inside out. You know, the stage three person, all the roads of life are funneling toward me. Stage five, the roads of life are going away and that's that stage five and of course the stage six gestalt just basically means that's the picture that i drew there with the person the stick figure and they're glowing right they have influence on people they don't even know right people that they're not even in a relationship with but their life just who they are calls people away from the shallowness and onto uh something that is looks more like purpose my reason for sharing this this morning is not to cut us down to size. I'll be very clear about that. Rather, my aim in sharing this, this morning 
is to give us a vision of the kind of person that Jesus is inviting you and me to become. Friends, humility is not an invitation to become self-loathing, spineless, or a wimp. Many of the people in Scripture that are celebrated who, who showed tremendous humility were also great successes in life. Um, humility may not fit into the world's pathway to success, but that's again because the world has a different definition of success. Stage three requires a lot of ego, but to move to the other side, life has to become about something more than just me. What I hope you see is that Jesus, is in, his invitation to humility is an invitation to become a true, a person of true and lasting consequence. A person whose life counts for more than just what he or she can consume. A person whose worth is not in the size of their checking account or the circles that they run, but in the difference that their life makes in the lives of other people. Again, this is what Jesus is calling us to. And friends, if becoming a person like that excites you, welcome to Hebron Christian Church. Because <laughs> that's what we are all about. We've been about this for decades now going back. This is our mission statement. It says to win the lost and to mature the believer. And friends, the model of maturity that is being presented here week in and week out is how we define maturity. It is what we are aiming for. To belong here means that you are on a path of becoming a person of purpose, a person whose life is turned inside out, a person who breathes hope and freedom and self-esteem into the lives of the people that you interact with on a daily basis. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Jesus is inviting us to, and that's what our church is all about. Amen? Um, you say, well, Gordon, I mean, if humility is such a defining quality of someone who lives a life of purpose, I want to, and, and I want to become more mature in Christ, and I want to see this kind of thing happen, in my, and I've asked these questions, and I've answered these questions, and I'm beginning to live more and more in response to these questions, but humility is central to all of this. How then do I get more humility? How can I become a more humble person? Well, that's a great question. I got three thoughts for you here along those lines. How do I become a more humble person? Number one <clears throat> is we need to actively rely on God. Actively rely on God. Jesus said, John 15 and verse 5, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that is whoever stays connected to me, that person bears much fruit. However, apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, a truly humble person believes Jesus when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. A truly humble person says, God, without you, I cannot turn my own life inside out. Without you, God, I cannot be the husband. I cannot be the father. I cannot be the wife. I cannot be the mother that I so desire to be. God, without you, I cannot love these children. I cannot love my coworkers the way I want to, the way that you want for me to. I need you in my life, God. I need your resources. I need the Holy Spirit. 
so touching my heart, so moving my life to become this kind of a person. God, without you, I will lose my patience. God, without you, I will blow my top. God, without you, I'll take the low road. God, without you, I can't be this person that you want for me to be. Friends, a truly humble person says, again, God, I need your Holy Spirit living and breathing on the inside of me, shaping me, empowering me, guiding me. I cannot do this, God, without you. I am relying on you. Friends, that is a person who's on their way to becoming humble. Number two, how do I become a humble person? Number one, actively relying on God. Number two, making sure to give God the credit. A truly humble person realizes that it was not them that did all of this, but that it was the Spirit of God empowering them and molding them that enabled them to be the person they needed to be. And so for that reason, we stand and thank God and give him the credit. You say, Gordon, hold on just a second. <laughs> I got to stop you there for just a second. Because, you know, the honor that I got at work, I earned that. I mean, I'm the one who put in the late hours. I'm the one who put, put in all the work. I'm the one who put in all the sweat equity. I'm the one who came up with the creative ideas. And so to say that, like, God's the one who created all that, I, I'm not sure I, that that works. Well, think about it this way. Who gave you the chance to have that job to work at? Who gave you the skill sets and the creativity and the flourishing mind to be able to drive those solutions uh, home? Friends, God had everything to do with it, and a humble person knows it. God says, Isaiah 42 and verse 8, he says, I am the Lord that is my name, and my glory I give to no other. Friends, God loves us a lot. He loves us more than we will ever know. But one thing that God will not give us, he'll give us all of his love, but one thing he will not give us is the credit. God reserves that for himself. The glory, the credit, it all belongs to him, and he is not willing to share it with you or with me. Friends, one of the marks of a humble person is that they know this so that they will give God the credit, not only in their own mind, but they'll give it to God in their interactions with other people. They will open their mouths and say, hey, let me tell you. I know you're saying thank you to me, and, and, and I, I hear that. But let me tell you why I am the person I am today. A truly humble person gets that, and they give God the credit. Number three, third and finally, if you want to bring more humility into your life, serve those around you. A truly humble person, recognizing that serving others is not just an add-on to an already busy life. Rather, serving others is their purpose. It is their reason for being. You know, we've got, I marvel sometimes, we've got corporate executives who on Saturdays are out here riding the mower around our buildings. I'm like, really? You don't, you don't need to do that, right? I want to go up to them and say, well, let, let, let me take your shift for you, right? But no, no, no. They want to do that. We've got small business owners who are down in the nursery this morning who are rocking little babies to sleep so that mamas who are tired from a long week can come in here for an hour and worship the Lord and can just spend time and recover. 
Friends, modern leadership theory looks at all this and calls it the servant leader model. Servant leaders recognize that their success is tied to the success of the people around them. And so in turn, they redirect their resources instead of toward themselves, they redirect their time and their energies toward the people around them. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says it this way, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility regard others as better than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests. God doesn't say you have to ignore your interests. He doesn't say you have to ignore your needs. But in addition to taking care of yourself, he says, also consider the needs of others. Friends, humility and a servant's spirit go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. Humble people don't look at themselves as better than others, waiting on other people to do for them. Rather, humble people see others, they see needs, they see those people as worthy vessels of their time and their energy. And so they turn their lives inside out and they invest their lives in others. How do you become a more humble person? Number one, by actively relying on God. Number two, by making sure to give God the credit. And number three, by serving those around us. Friends, that is true biblical humility. And when we do that, Jesus says, Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to close out my time this morning by sharing with you a story that illustrates this principle. It comes from the life of one of the most humble Americans and not coincidentally, one of the most influential Americans. His name was Abraham Lincoln. See if these words sound familiar. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Y'all know where that speech came from? Gettysburg Address. That's right. It was given on November the 19th of 1863. Uh, President Lincoln was there. Um, and we, we might say it was the most famous speech ever given in American history. It's memorized by thousands of school children every year. The occasion for the speech was the dedication of the cemetery at Gettysburg to honor those who had died um, and some four months before. Now, what's interesting is Lincoln was not, get this, was not the keynote speaker at that, uh, at that event. As a matter of fact, originally Lincoln was not even invited he was just an afterthought. Somebody said, well, we probably ought to have the president come for this dedication to the cemetery. And oh, by the way, if he's coming, I guess we ought to let him say a few words. And so they asked him two weeks before the event to come and share some words. Now, um, so that means Lincoln only had two weeks to prepare. Contrast that with the keynote speaker, a man by the name of Edward Everett. Edward Everett was uh, the Honorable Edward Everett. He was a former Secretary of State. He was a former Senator. He was a former Governor of Massachusetts. He was a former President of Harvard. And so Everett accepted the invitation to speak, and he was going to bring all of his pomp and all of his swagger with him. Everett had prepared what he believed would be the finest oration in the history of the United States. Wow, okay. Interestingly... Uh, is a little-known fact that the original dedication was scheduled not for November the 19th, but for October the 23rd, 
But Everett requested, I'm not quite got it polished yet. I would like two more weeks. And they gave him two more weeks to work on it. Uh, Kick the date backwards. So, well, when the day came, Everett mounted the platform, brimming with confidence, and he had completely memorized his speech. He began eloquently with these words. Standing beneath this serene sky, it is with hesitation that I raise my poor voice to break the eloquent silence of God and nature. I got another slide for you, and this is, this is actually the Gettysburg event. And the guy standing with a top hat on, with a beard, is Everett, uh, or Edward Everett. The guy you can't see quite in your picture. But seated behind him, hat off, head down, is Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln just sat there as Edward Everett spoke flawlessly, gestured flawlessly, for two hours. And Lincoln listened respectfully. And after Everett Everett had spoken for two hours, there was a rousing round of applause, and then it was Lincoln's turn. Lincoln pulled himself up slowly, walked to the platform, and then stood silently. Now, during the two weeks that Lincoln had to prepare for this, he was plagued with interruptions. I mean, the war was still going on. So much so that he had not had any time to work on the speech, so he did, took the only time he had, which was the actual trip from D.C. out to Gettysburg, and on that, on that trip, he wrote down on the back of an envelope the words of the Gettysburg Address. When it was his turn, he stood up, he reached into his pocket, pulled out a little folded piece of paper, lifted his face, and began slowly, four score and seven years ago. Lincoln used no gestures. Lincoln had, did not have his speech memorized. The entire address lasted a little more than two minutes. And when he finished, he went and turned and sat down. A reporter who was sitting next to Lincoln turned to him and said, Mr. Lincoln, is that all? Lincoln responded, yes, for the moment. The crowd did not clap. No one could even believe his speech was over. Everyone just stood there. Compared to Everett's magnificent oration, Lincoln's words seemed plain. They seemed ordinary. One might even say they seemed humble. One newspaper wrote the next day, and I quote, The cheeks of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, dishwatery under utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners that is the president of the United States, end of quote. Years later, whose speech do we remember? Whose speech do school, do school children recite? Is it standing beneath this serene sky? Who would folks today name As the keynote speaker of the day, most would say it was Abraham Lincoln. Jesus said, Luke 14 and verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Most gracious God, your word 
it is a mirror into our lives. And Lord, you cause us through your word and your truth, not just to see ourselves for all of our inadequacies, but Lord, you invite us with that imperfect picture to become a person of real consequence. Lord Jesus, as we share together today in these elements of communion, representing your broken body and your shed blood, Jesus, may you put inside of our heart a passion to want to become a person whose life is turned inside out, whose life, Lord, the influence of which will ripple out into eternity. That is the invitation that is set before us by following Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you this space. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen.